Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today on the Class War Battlefield podcast. Please do me the honor of supporting this work that I am doing. I've been doing this work now for free on your behalf for, my God, 11 years. 5, 10, 20, 50. If you can afford it, please do cash at me at dollar sign CWB podcast CWB podcast cash app it CWB podcast also also hit me up on PayPal CWB podcast all the way across the board y'all help me out help me out help me out thank you for donating and enjoy the show the first one this is uh two videos um one both of them are featuring the white house spokesman john kirby the first video will you'll see is his response to uh what's happening in gaza the second video you'll see was his response to what's happening in ukraine play the first one this is war it is combat it is bloody it is ugly and it's going to be messy and innocent civilians are going to be hurt going forward. I wish I could tell you something different. I wish that that wasn't going to happen, uh, but it is It is going to happen. And uh, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it uh, d- dismissible. It, it doesn't mean that we aren't going to still e- express concerns about that and, and do everything we can to help the Israelis do everything they can to minimize it. Uh, but uh, but that's, that's unfortunately the, the nature of conflict. Now watch uh, his same response, what his response is to someone asking about uh, what was happening in Ukraine back when that first started. Um, it's hard to look at what he's doing in Ukraine, what his forces are doing in Ukraine, and think that any um, uh, ethical, moral individual could justify that. It's difficult to look at the Sorry. It's difficult to look at some of the images and imagine that any well-thinking, serious, mature leader would do that. <clears throat> so I can't talk to his psychology, but uh, I think we can all speak to his depravity. Wow. The, the, the emotion for seeing people in Ukraine, white people. I mean, it is it is unnerving how blasé he was when asked about the Palestinian people's lives mm. and then how how emotional he got. Mm-hmm. And I want to make it clear. I, I think the people in Ukraine and the people in Gaza and the West Bank are being victimized by an oppressor. This is not an attack on uh, Ukrainian people. This is an attack on the U.S. government's position on and one thing. Awesome. That flies in the face of their position on another. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. What Putin is doing in Ukraine, I saw the images. So disgusting. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen images of kids without faces come across my feed in Gaza. There's a video that stood yeah. out to me of this little girl. She was like nine. And I forgot what the caption was, but she was hugging her little siblings and grappling with the reality 
that she was their de facto mom now because both of their uh, parents were killed. She was like nine. So she's trying to hold her little siblings. Yeah. And it's just. The video I saw was a little girl too. She was running back in and she said, that's my mom. I can tell by her hair. And she was sitting down trying to like really like wrap her mind about what her life was going to look like from that moment on. Like, that's my mom. I know her by her hair. Like, I know that's my mom. That was like, Mm. I can't. Those kind of things, I'm not good with it. So I, when I see videos and stuff, I rather like read what it, it's about. Oh, or same article. here. Yeah, I can't watch. I can't. Them. I can't watch. I yeah. really can't. It's just, yeah. But see, these things affect us because we're normal human beings, and we also, uh, we think that Palestinians are human beings. We see humanity uh, and suffering, but these folks, like y- y- they see Palestinians, and it just. It's they're not they don't feel like they're watching human beings like they've already dehumanized them. And once you've dehumanized someone psychologically, that damage that's done to them, the tears, it just doesn't click with you because you you've rejected their humanity, Um, which is which is why we see this difference, you know, Um, which is why we'll accept Ukrainian refugees, but not Palestinian refugees, because those are not the same. They're just one is human and the other is less human if even human you know they've been described by israeli officials as human animals so it's like some sort of a subspecies like the the thorough dehumanization and the way that this is reinforced in propaganda uh both explicitly and implicitly like this is this is why things are the way that they are you know it's it's racist to me like exactly. you know and this is what i made this point when um the haitian president was assassinated um and a lot of the haitians were trying to come here same time Ukrainians were offered um, all the help and to come in. Patients were getting kicked. They it's right back. They, they were getting whipped. Yeah, they were getting whipped on getting horses, horses. Right. My own cousin at the border getting whipped. I'm trying to go and figure out how I'm going to go pick him up. Next day, he was gone. Meanwhile, Ukrainians and all them, they were told because their country was not livable, their war, same thing was happening in Haiti, but they were given an opportunity and the Haitians were sent right back. For the times, they are changing. And critics prophesize with your pen and keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin. And there's no telling who that it's naming. And the loser now will be led to win for the times they are changing. Senators and congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorways, don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. There's a battle outside and it's raging. You'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times, they are a change. Mothers and fathers throughout the land Don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Your old road is rapidly aging Please get out of the new one if you can lend your hand For the times they are changing 
it is drawn, the curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be past, as the present now will later be past. Your old road is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last, for the times they're changing. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We look now at how students, professors, and others advocating for Palestinian rights across the United States are facing racist attacks and other threats to their free speech, safety, and livelihoods. This week, Florida ordered state universities to ban the group Students for Justice in Palestine, accusing it of supporting a terrorist organization. The group Palestine Legal is documenting and supporting people who were fired or faced other retaliation for sharing social media posts or signing statements in support of human rights for Palestine. This includes our next guest, Rena Workman, who was removed from their position as president of the NYU Law School's Student Bar Association, and saw their job offer at the corporate law firm Winston & Strawn withdrawn after they sent a newsletter to classmates expressing, quote, unwavering and absolute solidarity with Palestinians and their resistance against oppression toward liberation and self-determination, unquote, after Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel um, and the subsequent number of Palestinians who died in these last weeks. On Thursday, the Senate unanimously passed a resolution, quote, condemning Hamas and anti-Semitic student activities on college campuses, unquote, which referenced Rena, though not by name. This comes as doxing trucks target people at Ivy League universities who sign Palestinian solidarity statements, now appeared at Harvard, at Columbia, University of Pennsylvania, with digital billboard screens displaying people's faces, their names, and above them saying, anti-Semites. Palestine Legal and over 600 other legal groups and leaders issued a letter calling unelected officials and institutional leaders to address the, quote, hundreds of incidents happening across the country that signal a much broader effort to criminalize dissent, justify censorship and incite anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab and anti-Muslim harassment, unquote. The letter notes this is not a new phenomenon, but it's escalating at terrifying speed, unquote. For more, we're joined in Chicago by Dima Khalidi, the founder and director of Palestine Legal, and by Rena Workman, the NYU law student who had their prestigious job offer rescinded. Um, we welcome you both to Democracy Now! Rena, why don't we start with you? What exactly happened? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think that, you know, I sent a message to my fellow law students supporting Palestine and offering context to a narrative that I already saw building that was excluding, you know, the 75 years of history that we've seen in Palestine, the apartheid, the military occupation. And I wanted to, you know, add that I support Palestinians in their movement for liberation. And that is what my message was intended to get across. And what happened? You know, after that, we saw this incredibly swift backlash. Um, I lost my job offer. You know, my school immediately put out statements that distanced themselves from me, offered me no specific protections um, publicly. 
And, you know, I've been receiving hateful and racist and transphobic and queerphobic messages um, for the past three weeks that have only gotten more vile and more hateful as time has gone on. And what about your position both at NYU and uh, your offer of a prestigious law firm employment? Yeah, I think that, you know, the consequences that I'm personally facing are, you know, devastating for me. But I'm also really concerned that it's just promoting this chilling effect that we're seeing across not only my law school, but across universities and other law schools across the country, because folks are now afraid to speak up in fear that they might, you know, become the next me, that they might lose their offer simply for supporting Palestine and fighting this oppression and trying to end this genocide. So what do you say to the law firm now? And have they reconsidered? The law firm has not reached out to me at all. And right now, I really just want to focus on, you know, calling for a ceasefire and ending this genocide. And I really just want to say to everyone who cares about human life and cares about, you know, stopping uh, this killing to, to call for a ceasefire and, you know, and end this genocide that's happening right now to the Palestinians. I want to bring uh, Dima Halliday into this conversation. How common is what happened to Rena Workman? It's uh, become very common. Uh, Palestine Legal has been documenting for years what we call a Palestine exception to free speech. So it certainly didn't start on October 7th. We've seen these same kinds of tactics, severe doxing, attempts to get people fired and investigated to punish uh, boycotts for Palestinian rights and other advocacy through legislation and and uh, a, a, an attempt to purge academia of voices that support Palestinian rights. But since October 7th, when we've seen people mobilizing for Palestinian rights, we've seen an exponential increase. We, uh, we've had more than 300 requests for legal help, more than we get in a whole year, typically. And uh, Rena is, is really not alone. And we're seeing dozens, dozens of people getting fired and facing employment consequences around the country for making simple statements in support of Palestinian rights. We're seeing students get disciplined. As you mentioned, Amy, um, there are there is a widespread attack on the student movement for Palestinian rights, which has uh, built uh, uh, an incredible cross movement uh, um, uh, has built cross movement alliances on campuses for the last decade. And uh, really, people's livelihoods are being threatened and people's lives are also under attack. We saw a six year old Palestinian boy murdered just for being Palestinian. So, this is a widespread effort to intimidate, as Rena said, intimidate people into silence. But Rena is also not alone in the sense that there are so many voices who are speaking out because people are seeing more and more clearly what is happening here. This is about 75 plus years of a settler colonial state that has dispossessed an entire people of their land and of their dignity and of their humanity. And what is happening now is a complete dehumanization of Palestinians that is coming from the mouths of Israeli officials, which, by the way, have been speaking in genocidal terms about Palestinians for 75 plus years. And it's being echoed by our own elected officials repeating to level Gaza 
and to uh, wipe uh, wipe Palestinians off of the map. This is a genocide that is unfolding with U.S. support, and more people are seeing that. And, and that's what's critical here. We have to speak up. We have to protect people who are under attack for speaking out, uh, because that is our responsibility as U.S. citizens whose taxpayer money is being used to fuel this incredible uh, attack on, on Palestinians. Can you talk about what's happening in Florida? Uh, Governor DeSantis uh, demanding of the state university system to disband uh, the organization, um, uh, the Palestinian student organization, Students for Justice in Palestine? Of course, uh, DeSantis is often uh, the front runner when we're talking about uh, 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 undermining our constitutional rights. And once again, uh, he has attacked a student group uh, uh, based on their fundamental First Amendment rights to engage in advocacy on this issue. His move uh, is fundamentally contrary to the First Amendment, and uh, it will be challenged, there is no doubt. Um, this is also an attempt to criminalize what uh, students and others are 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 speaking out about, um, and there is no basis for this. And frankly, it's part of DeSantis's broader agenda and the right wing's broader agenda to undermine fundamental First Amendment rights by criminalizing protests for racial justice, by criminalizing protests for environmental rights and indigenous rights, and uh, by purging academia um, of people and cur curricula that are trying to teach about the sordid history of racism in this country. Uh, so it is part of his effort to whitewash uh, uh, our, our uh, universities and academia from dissenting voices. And uh, this has to be challenged in order for us to maintain the fundamental constitutional rights upon which this country is based and, and that are essential for any, uh, any uh, uh, prospect of maintaining democracy in this country. I mean, it's been interesting what's happened. You've got the doxing of students, for example, at Harvard and at, um, at Columbia. At Harvard, the more traditional conservative organization, Harvard Hillel, actually also condemned the doxing of students and these billboards that are going around with protesters' faces with the word anti-Semite above it. And at Columbia, is it true that um, the um, pro-Israel and the Palestine groups together condemned the doxing? The doxing is one of the most uh, uh, heinous ways of attacking people. Um, these are students, these are individuals who are, you know, working in various arenas, and, and they are being severely harassed. Their information is being publicized. They are, uh, they are being uh, uh, barraged, as Rena has, with death threats and horrible, misogynistic, transphobic and racist messages, uh, and, and their livelihoods are being threatened. So we have seen uh, uh, pro, even pro-Israel groups uh, uh, condemn this because they see how 
uh, how horrible it is for their own peers mm -hmm. to be faced with this uh, with this kind of harassment. And, and universities are really failing to protect their students here. Uh, we've seen a couple of instances where universities are beginning to take measures to, to prevent this doxing. And finally, Rena Workman, uh, your final comment. Also, who ousted you as president of NYU's Law School Bar Association? So the SBA, the Student Bar Association, originally initiated proceedings against me, but since have all resigned. But currently, due to messaging from Dean McKenzie, I am suspended until further notice from all of my presidential duties. And so even though I cannot you know, say anything or do anything as SBA president, I still want to say as a person that we should all be calling for a ceasefire and an end to this genocide. Rena Workman, I want to thank you for being with us. NYU law student who had a job offer rescinded after speaking out in support of Palestinian rights and calling for a ceasefire. And Dima Khalidi, founder of Palestine Legal. I'm Amy Goodman. Thank you for joining us. I will kill for the idea to be a Jewish state in a Jewish land. My name is Wajahat Ali, and some people know me as a writer slash commentator slash dude who wears a lot of makeup on television once in a while. It always seems that like white writers get to talk about Muslim radicals and extremists, but like Muslims are never allowed to like go talk about like any other radicals because we're seen as too sensitive, too emotional. You know, growing up, I can say as a son of Pakistani immigrants, Israel was a colonizing force, a force of oppression and injustice. I want to go talk to Jewish fundamentalists, these settlers in the West Bank. If we can get some people to think about Israel and Palestine through new lens, new perspectives, why not? In 1967, fearing an attack from the Arab world, Israel went to war. In six days, they not only defended their territory, but also expanded it to more than twice its pre-war size, including occupying the West Bank, the area Palestinians hope will be part of their future state. Today, over 400,000 Israeli Jews live in the West Bank in defiance of international law, a Swiss cheese of towns and cities that may make a viable Palestinian state impossible. I want to find out who are these settlers and why do they choose to live in the most contentious place on earth? I feel like I'm in a very wealthy American suburb. Uh, all right, who wants coffee? I will I gladly do. take if you are making, sir. And just let me see where my wife put sugar. To you as a religious Jew, just explain to me, why would someone choose to live in the West Bank? This is the symbol of returned, restored Jewish sovereignty. The land 
and the dream of the land is what makes us able to exist. Now we're coming to, uh, I think, one of the more historical things that justifies our being here, what we call the Tell of Shiloh, the archaeological mound. So we're digging out the past, and in digging out the past, we're finding bones, we're finding pottery, we're finding walls, and all building up a picture what was here at Tell Shiloh 3,500 years ago up until the, the present. So there's many Palestinians who say they have a greater right to this land than you, an American Jew, Born, last time I checked in Brooklyn? Bronx. Bronx, sorry, I stereotyped you. <laughs> so go ahead and keep digging 10,000 years. I'll show you the key to my great-grandfather who's here. I assume that he does have the key to an actual home that existed here from his grandfather. I don't dispute that. It's who was here consistently century after century, millennia after millennia. And that belongs only to the Jews. <laughs> When you think of that like dumpy settlement, right? This is the dumpy settlement. You got like these shack-like things behind me, especially to the left. So you were the first house. The first anything. Well, weren't you afraid of, I mean, there's nothing here. There's no grocery store, no gas station, no, Hospital, no neighbors. Good. Good. According to me, that's what I dream of. Everything is belong to us by history, by archaeology, by theology. I spent my last 2,000 years as a foreigner, as someone that exiled from this country in Iraq, in Poland, in Russia, in Germany, in no matter where. I won't be foreigner again. The occupied territories and the settlement project have been the central and most divisive political issues in Israel since literally the moment of the ceasefire in June 1967. A group called Gush Amunim, the Block of the Faithful, this kind of premier settler organization, began to work to create large-scale civilian settlement across the occupied territories. The right-wing Likud governments took that foundation and accelerated it greatly, and through a variety of means drew hundreds of thousands of Israelis to live in occupied territory. What we mainly do is we're playing offense. And it's not an offensive campaign against terrorism, it's an offensive campaign against Palestinian independence. There isn't almost any city in the West Bank Palestinian city that is not encircled by the settlements, 360 degrees. If you're a Palestinian, you want to leave a city, you need to have a permit. When you leave, you have to wait on a checkpoint. Another people, another authority that you don't recognize as your own, control every aspect of your uh, life. Three Israelis were killed by a Palestinian terrorist in the settlement of Halabish in the West Bank over the Jewish Sabbath. 
Guys, can we actually stop by on the settlement where this attack happened and can we do a quick stopover? I'm going to meet the sister of the IDF soldier who shot Omar al-Abid, the 19-year-old Palestinian attacker, and she's going to take us literally to the place where he saw them. My family heard the screamings, and my brother ran out, and he jumped over the bush over here. From the window, he saw the terrorist who was stabbing Yossi, my neighbor. He shot over there, and he managed to neutralize the terrorist who fell down on the floor. And then they ran into the house, and they saw an awful, awful scene, bleeding all over the floor. It's almost like the settlers are building homes on hot lava. Are they helping create the cycle of dysfunction? I think if anybody is not helping, it's the terrorists who are murdering people in their beds. I'm about to go talk to Umar's parents. Do you condemn what your son did or, or not? So, how did it go? I'm dying to hear. We visit the family of this guy, this 19-year-old Omar. So we meet the father today. So what was the father's point? I didn't see any remorse. I didn't see any condemnation from him. There's posters of Omar everywhere. You know, I think he was very proud for what he did. But no he... kidding, he's a, Omar is a hero now. Isn't it interesting? Then the holiest real estate on earth where God thrives with all of his prophets. I have not thought about God in the past week. I haven't seen God anywhere. We're about to head into Hebron. This has been described as the heart of darkness of the occupation of the settlements. It's a city which is literally divided between Muslims and Jews. The settlers here are some of the most hardcore. To avoid further angering the Palestinians, the Israeli government rarely lets them expand their community or build new homes. I'm here to meet Yishai Fletcher and Nomar Non, two representatives for the Jewish community of Hebron. The Jews in Hebron today are in a ghetto. Jews are forced to live in 3% of the town. What my Arab friends say to me is the most of the people, they don't want a Palestinian state or a Palestinian entity, and they want to be under Israeli sovereignty. Mm. 
Many Palestinians would say, Noam and Yishai are simply using you for pro-Israel propaganda. How do you respond to that? <laughs> For both of you, is it worth the bloodshed and the conflict? What you perceive us as bloodshed and conflict, we see is actually the end of 2,000 years of bloodshed and conflict. Today, in all of the wars of Israel, it's less than two days at Auschwitz. Okay, so to us, we actually see a time of great peace. But how do you reconcile that with Palestinian citizens of Israel? Can they be equal to Jews? No, not in my opinion. I don't deny democratic principles. I just say that they have to yield, the yield sign to Zionist Jewish principles first, and then, of course, cater to democracy. But that's not the first principle, in my opinion. For you. Yeah, my opinion. I'm always talking about my... Your narrative. Right, exactly. Thank you. We're on the Palestinian side of Hebron. Behind me, you can see the IDF. They're not supposed to be here, but uh, they kind of do what they want. We're now going up to the roof, and we've been warned not to stay there too long before going to the left. It's like 10 feet. Do you think Jews have a right to live in this land? Uh, where will the Israelis go? I feel sad, man. I feel sad. Now I'm thinking about you asking me, I feel really sad. I feel sad hearing every single story, I felt sad. Even the story of the settlers, because I feel like they missed the mark, you know? They missed the story of Abraham. They missed the spiritual lessons of what it was all, what it's about. I'm just curious if these two sides can even talk. I'm about to go meet Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger. He's one of the leaders of this NGO group called Roots, which brings Israeli settlers and Palestinians together for dialogue. So I came to this land from my story, and it took me 37 years to realize that there's another story. And now my mission in life is to help both peoples appreciate there's two stories here, and they're real and they're human and they're legitimate. I got an invitation to come to this place to meet Palestinians. Mm. I was apprehensive, perhaps even frightened, didn't know what happened to me. I walked in and one of the Palestinians uh, got up and then he said uh, a lot of things about the rigors of living under Israeli occupation. That was the first time in my life I heard someone use that word occupation. It was so different from everything I know, anything I could imagine. So I was confused and I was upset and I was challenged and I began a process that made me into what I'm becoming today. Suppose a Palestinian was here. They said, how can you not have seen me? I was, I was there all along. You're giving yourself a pass. The closer you are, the less you see. 
the uh, attitude of colonial America to the Indians is the attitude of America to the blacks. We've done things, we, I mean human beings. 20 years later, how could you have done that? Didn't you see? Didn't you see? The way that my people are settling Judah and Samaria is unfortunately coming at the expense of the Palestinian people. I think that's a fact. For many settlers, the redemption of the land is the only way to make Israel's soul whole and pure again. And yet the irony is, I believe, that Israel is on the verge of losing its soul by redeeming the land, by expanding, by creating more settlements. I see Israel and Palestine hijacked by absolutists from all sides. As the world's burning, those two will be dancing together. Israel's Supreme Planning Council is set to approve further expansion of illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank. Nearly 6,000 housing units are likely to be approved and three illegal outposts are being formalized under Israeli law. While the Supreme Planning Council is holding the meeting in Bet El, it's the first time such planning has been deliberated since the far-right finance minister and settler activist Bezalel Smotrich was put in charge of settlement policy. Ari Fawcett reports from the occupied West Bank. Jamal Abu Ayash has borne an immeasurable loss in defense of a small patch of family land. I inherited from my father, him from his father, four generations in the family. His son Jamil was killed by Israeli soldiers in 2021 during protests against the illegal Israeli outpost known as Eviatar. All settlements are illegal under international law. Outposts like Eviatar are illegal under Israeli law. The government's ejected settlers from the hilltop in the past. But in 2021, it promised they could return permanently once Eviatar had been made a formal settlement. That now looks all but certain. They will enlarge the settlement. There's nothing we can do. The Arab rulers have betrayed us. We have nothing but stones. All Israeli government supported settlements, not only this one. The man now in charge of settlement decisions is finance minister and far-right settler activist Bezal El-Smotrich. This was him in Eviatar in April. Eviatar! This place will be bustling with Jewish life, with heads held high, proud, and who love the land and the Bible. Israel is expected to advance thousands of new settler homes on Monday. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu calls it a response to terrorism. It's also set to initiate the formalizing of three outposts close to the illegal settlement of Eli, near to where a Palestinian shooting attack killed four Israeli settlers last week. And as existing outposts are being endorsed by this Israeli government, new ones are springing up, at least six built in the last week amid an outburst of violence. The Palestinian attack was preceded by a large-scale Israeli raid on the city of Jenin, killing seven Palestinians. It was followed by a wave of settler attacks on Palestinian communities and these hastily built new outposts, often in strategic positions between existing settlements. This is a new danger that threatens the Palestinian population on their lands. These outposts have also become a launch pad for gangs of hilltop youths to carry out their attacks on the Palestinians and their houses in nearby villages. From 2012 to 2022, the UN says the settler population grew by more than a third to over 700,000. 
But international pressure and security and legal concerns had seen some constraints on building and especially on attempts to formalize outposts. For Israel's new government, accelerated settlement expansion is a declared priority and legalizing outposts is becoming part of the program. Harry Fawcett, Al Jazeera, in the occupied West Bank. We've got two teams covering developments. In a moment, we're going to go to Nida Ibrahim, who's in Bethlehem, overlooking several illegal settlements. First, we're going to go to Imran Khan, who's life for us in the Givatsev settlement in the occupied West Bank. Imran, we're getting uh, news lines in saying that Israeli media has apparently um, is saying that the officials have approved plans for 5,000 new homes. What do we know about this plan? Well, it was to be expected. They were meeting today in Beth El uh, to try and decide how many of those settlements they could actually pass. Some of them may not have passed due to uh, technical specifics, but politically speaking, this is a very big victory for Beth El Smotrich, the finance minister. Now, it used to be a very complicated process to be able to approve a settlement expansion. Uh, it was six phases. Those six phases took in security considerations, political considerations. They even took in uh, things like who was going to get the contract to actually build uh, the settlement expansions. And there was also the Supreme Court involved as well. They simply dispensed with that last week in a cabinet decision chaired by the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. They handed all of those six phases to Bethlehem Smotrich, um, who now is almost in total control. And because of that, they were able to approve all of these 5,000 settlements. Let me just show you what that means in the occupied West Bank where I am. So you see, those are, that's a, a, an illegal settlement under international law. They're being constructed. Uh, some buildings are already up. 900 uh, new settlement units will be approved here. And there are two types of settlers. There are those who are economic settlers uh, who come here because the housing is actually quite cheap, the schools are good, and they come here because they want, they can afford to live here rather than places like uh, Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. And then there are the ideological settlers. These are the people who call the occupied West Bank, Judea and Samaria, and they say that this land was promised to them in the Bible and they're going to stay here. Now, these settlements have been built uh, uh, in increasing number since the 80s, uh, but now they are actually changing the facts on the ground. Where I'm stood, is supposed to be the state of Palestine if the two-state solution is ever agreed upon. But when you have settlements like this in such large number, it's very difficult to get rid of these people from these permanent places. So it becomes very difficult to negotiate a state of Palestine. And that's what the Palestinians are really concerned about. But with Betzazel Smotrich almost in complete control and approving these 5,000 new settlements, he's got a success. He's got something that he can play uh, to the gallery with. His supporters are predominantly settlers, and this is a big victory for him. Mm. Over the last 25 weeks or so, I think Al Jazeera has been reporting on those big protests in Israel over plans to change the legal system. How much of a priority is settlement expansion for Israelis? Well, the, the protests in Tel Aviv on Saturday night that get about 100,000 people um, are very internal Israeli politics. This is about the threat to democracy that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, whose judicial changes bill, uh, is pushing through and has pushed through. They're not really concerned about the settlements per se. 
However, um, because of the way the Supreme Court set up, it can actually stop settlement building. And that is something that they are concerned about. They're concerned about the idea that you can strip away the Supreme Court's power. Now, the far right of the ruling coalition, Betsyzol Smotrich, Ibtimar Ben-Gavir, the national security minister, actually says that the protesters are anti-democratic, that they don't understand what they're protesting for, that the Supreme Court has far too much power. So it's a bit of an intricate situation. But not many people are concerned about the actual settlements in the West Bank. They're much more concerned about the assault on democracy within Israel itself. But within that, the Supreme Court, uh, of course, the settlements come into it. Imran, thank you very much indeed. That's Imran Khan talking to us from the Gavat Zev illegal settlement in the occupied West Bank. Thank you. Thank you, Madam President. Members of the Security Council, we meet today in the aftermath of the most serious recent escalation between Israel and Palestinian militants in Gaza. Although the immediate crisis was diffused, the situation remains highly volatile. Following Israel's targeted killing of Palestinian Islamic Jihad commander Baha Abu al-Atta in Gaza, Palestinian militants launched more than 500 rockets towards Israel. This latest escalation was preceded on the 1st of November by some 10 rockets that were launched from Gaza towards Israel, one of them hitting a house in Zderot city. While according to the Israeli Defense Forces, 90% of the rockets were intercepted by the Iron Dome, those that landed caused damage to residential and commercial property. 78 Israelis were treated for injuries or shock. The indiscriminate launching of rockets and mortars at civilian population centers is unacceptable and must stop immediately. In response to the rocket attacks, the IDF conducted a number of strikes against PIJ and militant targets in Gaza. 34 Palestinians were killed, more than 20 of them identified by the IDF as militants, and three women and eight children as well. One of the fatalities was reportedly caused by a Palestinian rocket falling short inside Gaza. In total, 109 people were injured as well. Among the people killed in Gaza were eight members of a family who were killed in a single Israeli strike. The IDF has reportedly admitted that their, their home was mistakenly targeted. This is a tragic and heinous incident and must be thoroughly and impartially investigated. There is no justification for the killing of civilians anywhere. Madam President, I want to recognize today the extraordinary effort by Egypt, working closely with the United Nations, to ensure that calm in Gaza was restored after 48 hours of hostilities. Had our efforts failed, we would certainly be in the midst of another war that would be far worse than the terrible conflict of 2014. The dangers, however, have not passed, although for now the arrangements that came into effect in the early hours of the 14th of November are holding, sporadic rocket launches have continued prompting Israeli retaliation. But there are also other risks. Israeli closures and intra-Palestinian division feed a desperate reality. Militant activity, rocket fire, and retaliatory airstrikes constantly risk more violence. Over the past year and a half, the UN has worked hard to prevent escalation and implement the UN package for Gaza as endorsed by the AHLC. As a result of this work, electricity supply was restored to an average of 13 hours per day. More than 16,000 temporary jobs were created, and work is progressing on reviving an industrial zone to create long-term economic opportunities. 
All these measures have admittedly eased tensions, but they fall far short of what is required both in terms of financial resources, political commitment by Palestinian leaders, and measures by Israel. Gaza ultimately requires a political solution. Militant activity cannot continue to undermine the chances of peace and development. Israel cannot continue with its policy of closures that stifle development. Palestinian leaders cannot continue to avoid the devastating consequences of their internal political division. I take this opportunity to thank those in the international community who have contributed to the implementation of the AHLC plan and call on all to increase their support to UN programs on the ground. Most urgent is the need to address the collapse of the health system in Gaza. Nevertheless, Madam President, our important humanitarian engagement must not divert us from the political goal of helping Palestinians to develop freely without relentless occupation and Israelis to live in security, free from the fear of terror and rockets. The only way to ensure this goal is to work towards and achieve a two-state solution, one that is based on relevant UN resolutions, a two-state solution in which Gaza is an integral part of the future state of Palestine. Madam President, protests in Gaza at the Gaza perimeter fence have also continued with a small number of participants engaging in violent activities. The IDF responded with riot dispersal means and live fire, injuring over 300 people, including women and children. Israeli security forces must exercise maximum restraint and only use lethal force when strictly necessary as a last resort and in response to an imminent threat of death and serious injury in accordance with international law. Hamas must ensure that protests at the fence remain peaceful and prevent provocations. But Madam President, if we want a way out of this crisis, a way out that leads to something more than just another ceasefire, the road is clear. Stop firing rockets, retaliatory strikes and provocations, uphold the understandings that sustain calm in Gaza, redouble efforts to alleviate the humanitarian crisis and lift the closures, and focus on a long-term, sustainable political solution that includes allowing the Palestinian people across the occupied territory to vote and elect their leaders for the first time since 2006. In recent weeks, I have engaged with senior Palestinian officials and different factions, and am encouraged that all sides have moved from their entrenched positions and made important concessions towards making elections a more realistic prospect. Renewing the legitimacy of all national institutions is important for the future of the Palestinian people. In my discussions, I emphasized to all the critical elements that are required for elections to be credible. First, they must be organized across the occupied Palestinian territory in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, in line with the Palestinian basic law, electoral legislation and international best practices. Second, both legislative and presidential elections are necessary and should be held within a clearly identified and reasonable time frame. And third, broad intra-Palestinian agreement must be reached on the modalities of holding elections. Madam President, as Palestinians hopefully accelerate their efforts to hold elections, the Israeli-Palestinian politi Israeli political deadlock continues to manifest itself in the continuation of negative trends on the ground. On the 1st of November, some 2,600 housing units were advanced by the Civil Administration High Planning Committee, including 102 units in Mavot Yericho, an outpost in the Jordan Valley, 
that the Israeli government decided in September to retroactively legalize a new, as a new settlement. Other notable plans include 382 units in the Dolef settlement west of Ramallah and 609 units in the large urban settlement of Beitar Elite west of Bethlehem. I take the opportunity to reiterate that we re regret the announcement made on the 18th of November by the United States that it no longer views settlements as inconsistent, as inconsistent with international law. The United Nations position remains unchanged. As per UN Security Council Resolution 2334, Israeli settlement activities are a flagrant, flagrant violation under international law and a major obstacle to the achievement of the two-state solution and a just, lasting and comprehensive peace. Madam President, demolitions and seizures of Palestinian-owned structures also continued across the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Citing the absence of Israeli-issued building permits, which are nearly impossible for Palestinians to obtain in Area C and East Jerusalem, Israeli authorities demolished or seized 48 structures, resulting in the displacement of 101 Palestinians, including 46 children. This practice must immediately cease. Violence, Madam President, also continues across the occupied Palestinian territory. In the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, 46 Palestinians, including nine children, and three Israelis were injured in various incidents, including during clashes, search and arrest operations, and settler-related violence. On November 11th, a 22-year-old Palestinian man was killed in circumstances that indicate that he did not pose a threat. <coughs> Such acts must be thoroughly and impartially investigated and the perpetrators held accountable. The IDF has reportedly launched an investigation into this incident. Four days later, on the 15th of November, a Palestinian journalist lost an eye after being reportedly shot by the ISF while covering a demonstration in the Surif village north of Hebron. I remain concerned by continuing and sometime escalating settler-related violence. Attacks on Palestinians and their property in the context of the annual olive harvest have continued despite preventive measures adopted by the Israeli authorities. These attacks, along with the restrictions of, on Palestinian farmers' access to their land in areas adjacent to Israeli settlements and behind the West Bank barrier, have undermined agricultural livelihoods. Madam President, despite the agreements reached last month between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, agreements that resulted in the transfer of some 425 million U.S. dollars of clearance revenues to the Authority, the underlying disagreements between the two parties remain, including over Israel's deductions. It remains critical that both sides engage in a constructive manner with the goal of restoring the revenue transfers in full in line with the Paris Protocol on Economic Relations. The United Nations stands ready to assist this process. In a positive development, on November 11th, UN Women, with support from the government of Norway, launched a $1.2 million program to support the advancement of women, peace and security agenda in Palestine, including the development of the Palestinian National Action Plan for the next four years on the implementation of UN Security Council Resolutions 1325. Madam President, we have regularly updated the Council and its members on the financial challenges UNRWA continues to face. Cash flow is reaching a record low. I welcome the extension of UNRWA's mandate until 2023, as adopted by the Fourth Committee of the General Assembly on November 15th. But given the stakes, 
I urge the swift mobilization of support to enable the agency to sustain its operations. I take the opportunity to reiterate that we re regret the announcement made on the 18th of November by the United States that it no longer views settlements as inconsistent, as inconsistent with international law. Turning now to Israel. The Trump administration is reversing the Obama administration's approach towards Israeli settlements. U.S. public statements on settlement activities in the West Bank have been inconsistent over decades. In 1978, the Carter administration categorically concluded that Israel's establishment of civilian settlements was inconsistent with international law. However, in 1981, President Reagan disagreed with that conclusion and stated that he didn't believe that the settlements were inherently illegal. Subsequent administrations recognized that unrestrained settlement activity could be an obstacle to peace, but they wisely and prudently recognized that dwelling on legal positions didn't advance peace. However, in December 2016, at the very end of the previous administration, Secretary Kerry changed decades of this careful bipartisan approach by publicly reaffirming the supposed illegality of settlements. After carefully studying all sides of the legal debate, this administration agrees with President Reagan. The establishment of Israeli civilian settlements in the West Bank is not per se inconsistent with international law. I want to emphasize several important considerations. First, look, we, we recognize that as Israeli courts have that legal conclusions relating to individual citizen, uh, settlements must depend on an assessment of specific facts and circumstances on the ground. Therefore, the United States government is expressing no view on the legal status of any individual settlement. The Israeli legal system affords an opportunity to challenge settlement activity and assess humanitarian considerations connected to it. Israeli courts have confirmed the legality of certain settlement activities and has concluded that others cannot be legally sustained. Second, we're not addressing or prejudging the ultimate status of the West Bank. This is for the Israelis and the Palestinians to negotiate. International law does not compel a particular outcome nor create any legal obstacle to a negotiated resolution. Third, the conclusion that we will no longer recognize Israeli settlements as per se inconsistent with international law is based on the unique facts, <coughs> history, and circumstances presented by the establishment of civilian settlements in the West Bank. <coughs> Our decision today does not pre prejudice or decide legal conclusions regarding situations in any other parts of the world. And finally, finally, Calling the establishment of civilian settlements inconsistent with international law hasn't worked. It hasn't advanced the cause of peace. The hard truth is there will never be a judicial resolution to the conflict and arguments about who is right and wrong as a matter of international law will not bring peace. This is a complex political problem that can only be solved by negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The United States remains deeply committed to helping facilitate peace, and I will do everything I can to help this cause. The United States encourages the Israelis and the Palestinians to resolve the status of Israeli settlements in the West Bank in any final status negotiations. And further, we encourage both sides to find a solution that promotes, protects the security and welfare of Palestinians and Israelis alike.
a target range on the edge of Gush Etzion, an Israeli settlement block in the occupied Palestinian territories of the West Bank. The number of Israelis buying guns has jumped in the wake of the October 7th attacks, the government making it easier. Right now, it's in a week. It's very, very quick, very quick. This is a one-stop shop for training, licensing and buying a gun if you're Israeli. I think everyone in Israel, I don't think only in Israel, I think around the world were shaken by what happened. The gun I got is a Glock 43X. That's the one I chose. Kalanit Taub, a mother, says she wasn't a gun person before the horrific Hamas attacks. I feel that the gun is the only option I have to defend myself, and that's why I'm getting one today. Israeli settlements are considered illegal by much of the international community, built on land the Palestinians hope will one day form part of a Palestinian state. Hardline Jewish religious settlers say the land is theirs by biblical right, and there are fears more guns in the settlements could increase violence toward Palestinians in the wake of October 7th. It was already on the rise, with hardline ultranationalist Itamar Ben-Gavir now in the post of National Security Minister. He's already pledged to hand out 4,000 rifles to settlers in the occupied territories for free. And on Wednesday, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu urged Israelis to arm themselves privately, ahead of an expected Israeli ground invasion into Gaza. It's not only settlers, but people inside Israel, too. Tel Aviv journalist Mirav Arlozorov says it reflects the generational trauma the Jewish people carry with them. People were left for hours in their homes while terrorists were butchering them, burning them alive, and it, it's a huge trauma. And it really brought out all those basic fears that uh, we, we must protect ourselves. We used to uh, uh, trust the army to do that. Now we cannot even trust the army. But she herself is not in favor of relaxing gun laws. It's a very bad response, and we will, uh, we will, we will regret it. And these are the most uncertain of times. Margaret Evans, CBC News, in the occupied West Bank. Well, Israel has consistently expanded the number of its illegal settlements. Between 1967 and 2022, they built more than 290 of them across the occupied West Bank, with an estimated 460,000 settlers living there. Israel has also built several enclaves in Palestinian neighborhoods in occupied East Jerusalem, where more than 220,000 Israeli settlers live. The settlements violate international law, and the large number of Israelis who live there make it difficult to establish a Palestinian state. Nida Ibrahim is joining us live now from Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank. How worrying is all of this going to be for Palestinians, Nida? The settlement issue is, has been the issue that Palestinians have been talking about for years, if not decades. They say, how can we have, as Palestinians, a contiguous state with territorial continuity when Israel keeps building settlements? What happened is that in so many numerous times, Palestinians have 
told the international community, okay, you want us to negotiate on a state, on the 67 borders, what have you. You can't have Israel building on the lands that are going to be part of the future state. Of course, the latest such, uh, let's say, commitment from Israel came in March when Palestinians and Israelis were meeting in uh, a meeting under the auspices of the Americans to kind of bring a calmness to the situation here in the occupied West Bank. And there has been promises that no new announcements were made. But as you've uh, just reported, we're seeing new illegal settlement building units are being announced. I'm standing here in front of one uh, settlement. It is on, built on the lands of the city of Bet Sahur here in the occupied West Bank. This started off in the early 90s as a small settlement. And if you can see now, as the, it is the case with so many other settlements, uh, it, it, they're becoming sort of like cities with playgrounds, with access to water, infrastructure, electricity, roads. And on the other side of the fence, because you can see there is an Israeli-built fence here, you have Palestinians who are struggling to get water, struggling to get uh, resources, even their access to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is very close to Jerusalem. It has been severed by those settlements, by the separation wall that has been built by Israel. When it comes to Palestinians, they would tell you that we've given the political process so many chances and they've failed. Look, we're losing more lands as we speak. So for them, the armed confrontation has been uh, really the reason or the way for them to move forward and basically make the world listen to them. Nida Ibrahim talking to us from Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank. Nida, thank you very much. A voice cries out in the wilderness. I hear her call, but I don't know her name. Voice cries again in the wilderness. My name is Palestine and I will remain. She's holding a flag so very high Raises her voice with such a strong cry She's a symbol of a people who refuse to die Says my name is Palestine and I will survive I will survive, I will survive My name is Palestine and I will survive of darkness can't extinguish the flame of the freedom in your eyes and the love you retain these are more powerful than the weapons of war with their terror and lies but you bring something more and all across palestine they've had enough of killing and wounding from israeli guns want no more occupation no more siege no more brutality, they just want peace. I will survive, I will survive. My name is Palestine and I will survive. I will remain, I will remain. My name is Palestine, I will remain. Make a road in the desert for a new dawn to come. Make a road in the desert For equality to bloom Make a road in the desert For human rights to come 
You just heard Republican Senator Lindsey Graham answer the question that many of us have asked. How many innocent civilians have to die until you call for a ceasefire? And the answer is, as many as it takes, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, 100,000, the number doesn't matter. We're unequivocally standing with Israel no matter what. They can bomb refugee camps, administer collective punishment, use white phosphorus. It doesn't matter how many innocents die, we are going to stand with Israel, even if that makes us complicit. Now, that answer is not surprising, coming from a bloodthirsty warmonger like Lindsey Graham. But many liberals might be surprised to learn that this is the same stance as the Biden administration. They've explicitly stated that they're not drawing red lines for Israel. And that's not surprising considering that the White House press secretary dismissed calls for a ceasefire as repugnant and compared anti-Israel protesters, who, by the way, are calling for a ceasefire, to the Nazis who marched in Charlottesville in 2017. And the reason why... They're saying this, the reason why it's permissible to just dismiss the suffering and slaughter of innocent Palestinians is because our politicians and media have so thoroughly dehumanized Palestinians that the idea of an innocent Palestinian itself is literally being challenged. And that's not hyperbole. I would encourage the other side to not so lightly throw around the idea of innocent Palestinian civilians, as is frequently said. Uh, I don't think we would so lightly throw around the term innocent Nazi civilians during World War II. I mean, 50% of the people in Gaza are children, but we have to be really careful with our language here so as to not humanize the Palestinians because we don't want to give Americans the impression that Palestinians are innocent in the middle of Israel's genocide. Otherwise, the public might start to question whether or not it's ethical for us to support them being wiped off the map or being leveled like a parking lot as one politician put it. I don't even want to call it the Palestinian flag because they're not a state, they're a territory that's about to probably get eviscerated and go away here shortly as we're going to turn that into a parking lot. Despicable, but completely on brand for Republicans. I mean, they don't care about Americans being slaughtered endlessly in countless mass shootings. So, of course, they're not going to care about innocent civilians in Gaza being massacred as well. But on the subject of gun violence, many Democratic politicians have rightfully posed the question to Republicans that is now being asked to them. How many more innocent people have to die until you take action? In the case of gun violence, how many more innocent Americans have to be murdered until Republicans do something? Ban assault weapons, pass an 
international background check law. And we've never gotten a direct answer to that question, but years of inaction has essentially told us everything that we need to know. And when Democratic politicians hammer Republicans for their complicity in gun violence, they are quick to call out the role played by the NRA. And they're correct to point that out. The NRA spends millions of dollars every single election cycle, almost exclusively on Republicans, to buy their complicity and it works. As Democratic Congressman Richie Torres puts it, no amount of mass murder against children is enough for the Republican Party to let go of the iron grip the NRA has on them. Sickening. And he even courageously called for the abolition of the NRA entirely. And what he's saying here makes sense, because when human life is at stake, how can you justify taking money from an organization that is effectively paying you to be complicit in the deaths of innocent people? It's basically blood money. But the same can be said about him as well. Like the NRA, APAC is a far-right neoconservative interest group that spends millions and millions of dollars every single election cycle lobbying politicians to buy their complicity in Israel's oppression of the Palestinian people in West Bank and Gaza. But unlike the NRA, APAC actually gives to both Republicans and Democrats, though both organizations spend close to the same amount lobbying each year, give or take. So if you're wondering why liberal Democrats unequivocally support Israel's right-wing government and refuse to criticize Netanyahu's war crimes, even though he is basically their version of Donald Trump. This is why. It's the same reason why the Republicans won't do anything about gun violence. In the same way that the NRA buys compliance, APAC does the same when it comes to Israel policy. Take Richie Torres, for example, again. His biggest campaign contributor in the last election cycle was APAC, and that money was well spent because Richie Torres has not only shot down the notion of a ceasefire, but he's also criticized people calling for one and also denies the notion altogether that Israel is doing a genocide in Gaza. Now, keep in mind that Israeli Holocaust scholar Raz Siegel says that Israel's assault on Gaza is a textbook case of genocide, and on top of that, the U.S. UN's director of human rights resigned over the West's support for what he calls genocide, his words, not mine. But if you ask Richie Torres whether or not it's a genocide, well, here's what he'll say. The, the notion that Israel's committed against the cleansing and genocide is absurd. And keep in mind that the critics of Israel have been accusing Israel of committing genocide long before the conflict. Um, you know, Israel is in an enormously complicated situation. If you believe as I do, that Israel has the right to defend itself. In order to defend itself, it has to drive Hamas out of power. If Israel were to keep Hamas in power, it would run the risk of an even deadlier terrorist attack against its own people in the future. And Israel cannot afford a Hamas that's empowered to perpetrate deadly terrorist attack against its own people. The highest responsibility of any government, whether it's the United States or Israel, is to protect its people. With a straight face, he said the notion that Israel is committing a genocide is absurd. Now, I, for one, I'm more inclined to agree with the Israeli Holocaust scholar and an expert on human rights at the UN. I'm inclined to think that they know a lot more about this than Richie Torres. But I mean, his point is that Israel has the right to defend itself no matter the cost. So this begs the question again, how many innocent Palestinians have to die in the name of Israel defending itself before Richie Torres says enough is enough. 10,000, 20,000, I mean, 3,195 children plus have already been killed in three weeks in the name of self-defense. So the question is, how much is enough for Richie Torres? And as someone who knows the power of lobbying, 
he knows the answer. So let's put his tweet back up, and uh, you'll notice that I took the liberty to change a couple of words. Quote, no amount of mass murder against children is enough for the Democratic Party to let go of the iron grip APAC has on them. Sickening. So when he calls out the NRA for their blood money, that's the pot calling the kettle black. And I may have changed some words there in that tweet, but that is effectively the position that Richie Torres, as well as the Biden administration, is taking, which isn't a surprise considering all of the money that Biden took as well from the Israel lobby during his tenure as a U.S. senator. But if you point this out, you're anti-Semitic, according to Richie Torres, because he responded to claims that he's bought off by lobbyists, saying there's a false narrative that I am pro-Israel because of, quote, the Jewish lobby or, quote, Jewish money or whatever anti-Semitic tropes critics wish to invoke. Left unmentioned is the fact that I have been pro-Israel for nearly a decade, long before I ever thought of running for Congress. Now, to his latter point, I mean, I guess that's fair. Maybe he was unapologetically pro-Israel before running for Congress, but the same can also be said about Republicans that Richie Torres criticizes. Maybe Jim Jordan, the single biggest individual recipient of NRA money, was also pro-gun before he got into Congress, and he was always really enthusiastic about no gun safety laws in America. I mean, if it's true for Richie Torres, the same can be said for pro-gun Republicans, right? Now, his main point there is that pointing out this corruption is apparently anti-Semitic. Now, if you'll notice, he did a little bit of a switcheroo there, and he said the Jewish lobby and Jewish money, which is a straw man because critics who refer to AIPAC are referring to the Israel lobby. Now, there is a difference, and it's important that we don't muddy the waters between these differences and obfuscate. So the difference is that the Israel lobby does not spend money at the behest of the Jewish people. This is not a Jewish human rights organization or a Jewish advocacy organization. They spend money at the behest of Israel's right-wing government. And this isn't unique to Israel. If you look at the total foreign lobbying done since 2016, Israel is actually ninth out of 10. Number one is China. Is it xenophobic to point that out? No, because everyone knows that China is lobbying when it comes to business and trade. Saudi Arabia spends more than Israel. So when we point out that it's wrong to sell them weapons because we know that they're going to use them on innocent Yemenis, is it Islamophobic to point that out? No, because Saudi Arabia represents the Saudi Arabian government when they lobby, not Muslim people. Similarly, when the Israel lobby spends money, they are not advocating for Jewish people. They are promoting the neoconservative positions that the Israeli government holds when it comes to Iran, and they're trying to buy silence when it comes to the Israeli government's treatment of Palestinians. But all of a sudden, according to Richie Torres, it's anti-Semitic. No, that is such a despicable thing to say, because anti-Semitism is very real, and it is rising around the globe. Now, there are conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the governments and the media, and they are deeply harmful and anti-Semitic, and we must defeat them. Why does the United States support Israel? Well, there's a history, and a very interesting one, that actually goes back to uh, goes back a long time. Uh, one thing to remember is that Christian Zionism is a very powerful force, which goes back long before Jewish Zionism. In England, particularly, Christian Zionism was a powerful force among British elites. It's part of the motivation for the Balfour Declaration and for Britain's support for Jewish colonization of Israel. Remember, the Bible said, you know, and that's a big part of uh, British elite culture. Same in the United States. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was a, 
uh, a, a devout Christian who read the Bible every day. So did Harry Truman uh, in the Roosevelt administration. One of the leading officials, Harold Ickes, once described the return of the Jews to Palestine as the greatest event in history. It's uh, realizing the lesson of the Bible. Uh, these are deeply religious countries in which the biblical commands, so-called, are taken quite literally. Also, this is just part of colonization. This is the last phase of European colonization. And uh, notice that the countries that are most strongly in support of Israel are not just the United States. It's the United States, Australia, and Canada, the offshoots of England, Anglosphere sometimes called, unusual forms of imperialism. These are settler colonial societies, colon societies in which the, not like India, not like the British in India say, the societies, South Africa was a little like this, or Algeria under the French, settler colonial societies in which the settlers came in, essentially eliminated the native population, also driven by uh, religious principles, very religious groups driven by Christian Zionism. Those are major cultural factors. There are also significant geostrategic factors. And you go back to 1948, uh, there was actually a split between the State Department and the Pentagon in the United States over how to react to the new state of Israel. The State Department was 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 question was not committed strongly to Israeli conquests, the establishment of the state, and was concerned about the refugees. It wanted an implementation of the refugee problem. The Pentagon, on the other hand, was very impressed with Israel's military potential. The Israeli military successes, uh, if you look back at the internal record and declassified. Uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff described uh, Israel as the second largest military force in the region after Turkey and a potential base for U.S. power in the region. Now, that continued, can't r run through the whole record, but in 1958, when there was a serious crisis in the region, uh, uh, Israel was the only state that strongly cooperated with Britain and the United States, and it won plenty of support from the governments and the military for that reason. Uh, 1967 is when the current relations with Israel were pretty much established. Israel performed a major service to the United States by destroying a secular Arab nationalism, a major enemy of the United States, and supporting radical Islam, which the U.S. supported. And it continues right until the present, uh, right now. We saw an example of that just during the uh, Gaza, uh, latest Gaza attack. You recall that uh, at one point, Israel began to run out of munitions during the assault, despite the fact that it's uh, armed to the teeth. Uh, the United States provided Israel with additional munitions through the Pentagon. And notice where they were taken from. These were mus U.S. munitions pre-positioned in Israel for eventual use by U.S. forces. One of many signs of how the Israel is regarded as essentially a military offshoot of the United States. Very close intelligence relations that go way back. 
many other connections. And uh, the media tend to take up, to, to support the policy of the government with very few, you know, kind of little questioning around the edges, but basically accept the policy. Today is October 10, 2023, and we have a very special guest on the show today, Dr. Gerald Horn. Gerald Horn holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. Gerald Horn is an activist, scholar, researcher, archivist, author, historian, and much, much more. He has written at least 47 books and is considered one of the most prolific history authors of all time. Um, Dr. Horn, thank you so much for coming on the show and welcome back to the show. Thank you for inviting me. So today I wanted to go uh, around the horn and talk to you about some of uh, the domestic and international events that are happening right now. Uh, first, um, on Saturday, October 7, 2023, the Palestinian resistance in Gaza launched a historic surprise attack against Israel. The surprise attack referred to as Operation Al-Aqsa Flood is the biggest attack launched by a Palestinian resistance force in years. And broke, through, and broke through a nearly two-decade blockade of Gaza. Of course, Israel has used this attack to expand their genocidal campaign against the Palestinians. The latest reports I have, um, and I'm sure there are actually are new reports, is that Israel has cut off the, the Gazans from all food, water, fuel, and supplies, and more. Israel has, has also augmented their bombing campaign the Israeli Air Force continued to target Palestinian homes and other civilian infrastructure in Gaza on the fifth consecutive day. Um, over 700 Gazans, including 143 children, have been killed, and over 4,000 people have been wounded in Palestine. Um, and according to local media reports, Israeli warplanes targeted more than 200 locations inside Gaza on Monday alone. The targets included mosques, uh, civilian buildings, including schools, hospitals, homes, and other essential facilities, exacerbating the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Um, Israel is also using the banned chemical weapon, white phosphorus uh, bombs, um, on civilians in densely populated areas in northern Gaza. Um, and several international bodies and, and international rights organizations have claimed that, that Israeli's actions over the past few days constitute war crimes. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. Um, stated that it's supplying arms and ammunition to Israel a day after deploying its warship into the Mediterranean. But let me stop here um, and ask you what your reaction is to the Palestinian resistance attack on Israel and what is the historical significance? Well, first, like a cinematographer, let's pan out first and then zero in for the establishing shot. Uh, panning out, I have been struck by the fact that in the last 24 hours, the U.S. administration was able to knock together a letter uh, signed by the leaders of Britain, France, Germany, and Italy, establishing solidarity with the Israelis, basically suggesting, in so many words, that the Israelis be given a free hand, uh, which is code for fomenting war crimes. Now, I find this striking because 
it did not include Japan and South Korea, which, as you know, the North Atlantic Treaty Organizations Organization, NATO, which includes those aforementioned powers, has been trying to include Japan and South Korea in a kind of Asian NATO focused on China. Now, what's remarkable about that is either A, they didn't ask Seoul and Tokyo to be included, which means, or suggests, I should say, that perhaps they were afraid of the answer that they would receive, or B, they asked and were rebuffed. And if they were rebuffed, it might be because if you look around the world, particularly in the all-important Arab and Islamic world, uh, there's a formidable thumbs down on what Israel is doing. Even Saudi Arabia, which we were told in the prelude to October 7th, was on the verge of signing a historic accord with the Israeli authorities. And in fact, in the last few weeks, you've seen Israeli cabinet members travel to Saudi Arabia. The Saudi statement was unequivocal in its support for the Palestinians, which then brought on condemnation from Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. You know, I'm sure, that the Turks have been at odds with the Israeli authorities. Recall that there was an international meeting uh, a decade or so ago where Mr. Erdogan, the preeminent Turkish leader, it seemed like he was about to get into blows with an Israeli leader with whom he shared a stage. The Turks, uh, of course, are quite close to Hamas, which has been given credit uh, for this uh, path-breaking attack on the Israeli authorities. And there have been demonstrations in Istanbul. And then look at the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, particularly the most populous, predominantly Islamic nations, speaking of Indonesia. Uh, they've thrown cold water on this Israeli enterprise, as has Malaysia, another predominantly Islamic nation, and also a rising economy, not to mention Pakistan. And so if Seoul and Tokyo did not sign on to this Biden North Atlantic letter, there might be good reason because they do not necessarily want to alienate these major uh, trading partners. At the same time, pay careful and close attention to what's going on in the United States itself. Uh, number one, in the New York Times just a day or so ago, you had a columnist who uttered words I thought were only allowed in left-wing media. Uh, that is to say that the planet on which we reside is on the verge of a new world order, uh, which involves the declension of U.S. imperialism. Uh, that is a very bitter pill to swallow. But in light of the fact that as we speak on October 10th, 2023, in the afternoon, despite protestations to the contrary by the Israeli authorities, it is not clear if Israel has control over their southern border 30 miles in, 30 miles from Gaza. Uh, imagine what would happen if the United States authorities did not have control over their southern border uh, with Mexico, uh, for example. Uh, that would be uh, quite portentous, uh, quite alarming in Washington. And this signals a real turning point with regard to the correlation of forces 
not only in historic Palestine, but possibly uh, globally. In that context, note that uh, Kevin McCarthy, the once impossible future speaker of the House of Representatives, second in line to the presidency up to a few days ago, has spoken of what he calls a new axis of evil, uh, speaking of Russia, China, and Iran. Uh, with regard to Iran, you know that the U.S. authorities have sent a naval flotilla uh, off the coast of Israel. There has been a drumbeat of propaganda and misinformation and disinformation, including the Wall Street Journal just the other day, saying that the hand of Iran is behind this Hamas attack. Uh, it makes me remember that the late Pentagon chief, Donald Rumsfeld, oftentimes suggested that if you have a problem, the way to deal with it is to enlarge the problem, which sounds illogical, uh, but it's reflective and redolent, redolent of the uh, swash, swashbuckling incompetence of U.S. imperialism. Uh, that is to say, uh, they are obviously uh, dusting off war plans involving an attack on Iran, uh, which conceivably could draw in the other purported members of the axis of evil, uh, speaking of Russia and China, uh, which would allow U.S. imperialism uh, to accomplish in one fell swoop a triple knockout blow, uh, knocking out Iran and their de demented imagination, uh, knocking out Russia, which they are now involved in a losing conflict with in Ukraine, and then knocking out the big enchilada, the People's Republic of China. Uh, we should take this very seriously. Uh, it may portend, I'm afraid to say, uh, the onset of uh, World War III. Now, given that, we should not be surprised that the U.S. left and U.S. dissidents in general should be uh, on guard at this fraught moment because the onslaught of propaganda has tackled us as well. I'm thinking of the rather alarmist and hysterical remarks of the emeritus Harvard Law School professor, Alan Dershowitz, who has suggested that campus radicals need to be cracked down on because the demonstrations, for example, in Times Square just the other day ago, uh, he's laying at the doorstep of these uh, so-called campus radicals. Uh, you see that Lawrence Summers, a former president of Harvard, former cabinet member, under Clinton and a leading official under Obama has excoriated the school where he works, Harvard University, speaking of the administration, which has just uh, installed a black woman president, speaking of Claudia Gay, uh, for their supposed silence with regard to not supporting Iran. Uh, that is to say that the conflict in Ukraine obviously has involved deep fissures within the body politic, not least on Capitol Hill, uh, not least with regard to the two-party duopoly, the Democrats and Republicans. This conflict in Israel-Palestine is a horse of a different color. And when the U.S. ruling class is united, it oftentimes uh, spells ill for the rest of us. The, the late the writer and poet Amiri Baraka, with regard to the black community, 
uh, used to call for unity without uniformity. Nowadays, the call from the ruling class with regard to Israel is unity and uniformity. And those who dare to speak out uh, like a nail uh, sticking up from a piece of lumber can be expected to be uh, hammered down. What these defenders of Israel are doing is they're trying to muddy the waters and pretend as if criticism of Israel is tantamount to those right-wing conspiracy theories about Jewish people. When that doesn't even make sense because we don't have that same standard for any other government because it's illogical. Of course, you can critique a government without critiquing the people. People are people and governments are governments. But what Richie Torres is paid to do is draw this equivalent specifically to silence critics of Israel. But in doing so, he is effectively smearing Jewish people, a community that he is not a part of. Because Jewish people are not responsible for the actions of Israel's fascist government. And to say that a criticism of Israel is tantamount to a criticism of Jewish people, is that not an incitement of hatred? Because when we see that Israel is doing war crimes, you're basically saying, no, Jewish people are responsible for that too. That's not okay. Countless Jewish peace activists have led protests against Israel's genocide in Gaza. So when you conflate Israel with all Jewish people, you are attaching culpability to them in the same way that Israel's government is attaching culpability to all Palestinians by drawing a false equivalence between them and Hamas. You're no better than the politicians who are saying there are no innocent Palestinians. Again, people are people and governments are governments. Muddying the waters in that regard is downright dangerous. It helps to proliferate hate against these communities that are seeing an increase of hate because of what's happening. And if you can point out the NRA's effects on politicians, you obviously can do the same when it comes to Israel. And spoiler alert, we live in a late stage capitalist hellscape. Most policy positions of politicians can be explained by simply looking up their donors. Want to know which politicians support Medicare for all? The ones that haven't taken money from the health insurance industry. Want to know which ones are perfectly fine with 68,000 Americans dying every single year due to a lack of health insurance? Well, the ones who took donations from the health industry want to know which politicians don't support an increase in the minimum wage. Just look up the donations that they've taken from large multinational corporations who disproportionately employ minimum wage workers, so on, so forth. This is the way that our government functions. And calling that out is important. It's honest. It's not anti-Semitic. But those who say that it is anti-Semitic are playing a very dangerous game here, and they're inciting hatred against people who have nothing to do with the actions of the Israeli government. But thankfully, lawmakers are starting to call this out, and uh, it's not just progressives who are doing that. For example, APAC called out lawmakers who voted against the House resolution standing with Israel, saying, instead of standing with Israel, Republican Thomas Massey is standing with the squad. Now, AOC actually responded to that, pointing out, APAC endorsed scores of January 6th insurrectionists. They are no friend to American democracy. They are one of the more racist and bigoted PACs in Congress as well, who disproportionately target members of color. They are an extremist organization that destabilizes U.S. democracy. Now, Cory Bush chimed in, saying, APAC's dark money grift and anti-democracy propping up of insurrectionists are attempts to undermine the will of the people. They spread lies, distort 
truth and spend millions of dollars targeting black and brown elected officials working to end hate and injustice. Now, Ilhan Omar also jumped in, adding, APAC literally ran ads with my face next to Hamas rockets, resulting in a string of threats against my life. When Democratic leadership called them out, they refused to apologize and kept the ads up. What they are doing is insulting and Islamophobic. You cannot claim to be progressive while launching a super PAC that exclusively targets progressives and supports Republicans in the general. Now, to my surprise, a Democrat who wasn't even called out by APAC jumped in. Mark Pocan, who echoed what AOC said, saying, Gotta admit, this sums up how many feel about what APAC really is about. Insurrectionists, WTF, no friend of democracy. Now, APAC responded to him by calling him a hypocrite and accusing him of singling them out. But he hit back, saying what APAC doesn't tell you is they raise money from big Republican donors and spend it in Democratic primaries against Democrats. It's a cynical, undemocratic strategy. And since they clearly don't care about dead kids, it's all about backing a conservative Netanyahu position. Now, AOC buttressed Pocan's point, saying it's past time for us to recognize how toxic of a presence APAC has been in our political system. They actively boost candidates who tried to overthrow the U.S. election and run smear campaigns on members of Congress who stand up for human rights. Enough. Now, on top of that, Justice Democrats chimed in, pointing out APAC endorsed 109 Republican members of Congress that voted to overturn Joe Biden's election, including the current speaker, Mike Johnson. But it gets even better because Thomas Massey, the original target of APAC's tweet, a Republican, by the way, he also jumped in saying APAC always gets mad when I put America first. I won't be voting for their $14 billion shakedown of American taxpayers either. Let them know what you think by replying to their post. They are intentionally misrepresenting my intent and the resolution I voted against. Now, in a follow up tweet, he explained his reasoning for opposing that resolution. Among them, he thought that it was too hawkish and he didn't want to commit to foreign aid that he doesn't support. Support, but most importantly, quote, it contains an open ended promise of military support that is so broad that it could be interpreted to commit U.S. soldiers to the conflict. U.S. troops should not be engaged in this conflict, and it tends to broaden the conflict to other countries when it would be better to keep the war contained geographically. So APAC thought that they could go after a bunch of lawmakers who opposed them, and these lawmakers would be too afraid to speak out, but they're not. They're fighting back finally. APAC is smearing these lawmakers, pretending like they refuse to stand with Israel or condemn Hamas, when in actuality, the resolution that they opposed is much more complex than that. Progressives who opposed it did so because there was no concern for Palestinians. So for Thomas Massey and progressives to take the gloves off and go after APAC like this in a direct public way, that is huge. It almost feels like a paradigm shift because this is something that politicians avoid because it could be the end of their careers. And what AOC and all of these politicians are doing here is important because it forces Democrats to take APAC money to explain why they're aligned with a far-right organization that contributes to Republicans. And that framing matters because Democratic Party voters might not know that APAC is bad because it's lobbying specifically at the behest of Israel's ultra-nationalist Trumpian government. But if they end up finding out that Democrats are taking money from an organization that also supports insurrectionist Republicans, I mean, that could change their perception of this organization, as well as Democrats that take money from this organization. Now, before you send flowers to Thomas Massey and Mark Pocan, uh, you should probably know that Pocan also does not support a ceasefire, despite his denunciation of APAC. And uh, Thomas Massey is basically the inverse of Richie Torres when it comes to the NRA, albeit to a lesser extent. He only admits to taking two 
$2,000 from the NRA, but it's a little bit disingenuous to say that because as Becky Whitehill points out, Citizens United has made it so organizations can give indirectly to politicians through super PACs. So if you look up his donations, you'll see that he's taken thousands more from non-NRA gun interest groups throughout his career. And like the gun lobby, the Israel lobby is comprised of more than just APAC, and campaign contributions alone don't tell us everything. Thomas Massey might not be the most bought-off Republican when it comes to the gun lobby, but he knows that if he suddenly endorsed gun safety legislation, well, the gun lobby could come after him by funding his opponent in the next primary. And knowing this is a possibility has a profound impact on politicians. Take John Fetterman, for example. As The Intercept reports, quote, during his primary race against Representative Connor Lamb, as The Intercept previously reported, Fetterman allowed the Democratic majority for Israel, another pro-Israel interest group, to guide his platform on Israel and Palestine. DMFI had spent the campaign season dropping millions of dollars in opposition to progressive Democrats critical of U.S. support for Israel, and Fetterman succeeded in avoiding their ire. And in order to avoid DMFI and APAC bankrolling his opponent during that primary, he had to make it crystal clear that he would support U.S. aid to Israel without any additional conditions. Now, what happens if you don't toe the line of the Israel lobby or you refuse to play ball with them? Well, they could crush you. As Common Dreams explains, APAC in recent U.S. elections has spent millions of dollars to defeat progressive candidates such as Representative Summer Lee and former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, both supporters of Palestinian human rights, as well as pro-democracy reforms in the U.S. with mixed success. And the success was mixed there because Summer Lee ended up winning despite all the money from the Israel lobby spent against her. But Nina Turner, however, ended up losing. Now, at one point, there was a poll that showed that Nina Turner had a 35-point lead over her opponent. And her opponent, Chantel Brown, knew that if she was going to win, she needed more money fast. So what did she do? Well, as The Intercept explains, she low-key pleaded with super PACs to throw her a life vest. In particular, she conspicuously shared quotes on her website about how she was very pro-Israel, and this was a shameless attempt to solicit contributions from the Israel lobby, but guess what? It worked. She got the money, and she won. Now, the same thing could happen to Cori Bush. In fact, it's happening right now before our very eyes, because as the Washington Post explains, St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell announced this week he was dropping his months-long bid to unseat one of the country's most outspoken Republican senators, Josh Hawley, to launch a primary campaign to oust fellow Democrat Representative Cory Bush. When asked to explain his switch, Bell pointed to Bush's criticism of Israel. Now, as Twitter user Sean points out here, this line of attack against Bush is his opening pitch to APAC and DMFI. And he's correct about that. I mean, why try to defeat an insurrectionist Republican when it's easier to raise thousands of dollars automatically by pledging your undying loyalty to Israel? See, him declaring loyalty to Israel isn't going to matter in the Senate race against Josh Hawley because Josh Hawley also pledged his undying loyalty to Israel. But where it could really make a difference is against a progressive deemed the enemy of AIPAC, Cory Bush. That money could be make or break. Cory Bush is in legitimate danger here. So this is what we're up against. This is why Democrats and Republicans have no red line when it comes to Israel's war crimes in Gaza. Now, you can also blame ignorance and cowardice. I think this is the case for some politicians like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But for the most part, I think most politicians who toe the line, they're doing so because they were paid to do so by the Israeli lobby. Palestinians just don't have comparable lobbying power. 
So this is why politicians in both parties turn a blind eye to their suffering and pretend as if they don't exist. But times are changing and public sentiment is shifting before our very eyes. The majority of Americans who now support a ceasefire, they're going to wonder why our government isn't supporting the common sense position. And they're soon going to learn that it's because money in politics is, again, the lowest common denominator. And in the same way that the NRA pays Republicans to do nothing about gun violence, APAC pays politicians in both parties to do nothing about Israel's war crimes in Gaza. a little bit of, uh, of time in the broader context and, and you know when starting in 1948 maybe even before then in terms of like the 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 genesis of of zionism 
Um, but what's the value of that project? In other words, like, you know, the, I mean, uh, I, 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 this has been a question that, that, you know, in terms of, of, of Israel and as, as a Jew who was raised, uh, you know, with the Hebrew education in the seventies, uh, I've said this on the program many times. I had, uh, Hebrew teachers who, uh, had tattoos from the Holocaust and it was, we learned about the Holocaust, which was the premise. And that was only 30 years, you know, when I was my son's age, uh, it was, had only been, uh, 30 years earlier, uh, now we're, you know, uh, 40 years, 50 years out, uh, close to, to when I learned those things and just to give a sense of time to an audience that might be, you know, younger than I, uh, but the second thing was, was, was Israel. And there was for as long as I can remember, there was always a sort of like an argument, uh, as to who's, who had the moral righteousness, righteousness in uh, the, uh, the debate and, uh, you know, over time, I found that sort of like a, a fool's errand. But what is important to know about the, uh, the, the, the founding of Israel? Because there's, a, there's also, I think, been a, an analogous sort of like to a Dunning school uh, in, in this uh, country in terms of uh, Reconstruction and the Civil War. And there was a version of that with the founding of Israel. So, I mean... First, but but first, tell us about like the importance of knowing this history. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that there are two sort of elements that are important uh, to remember in a very short uh, and abrupt uh, kind of uh, uh, crash history uh, course. One is that Zionism emerged uh, in the late 19th century as an ideological movement that was seeking a safe haven for Jews who were persecuted by anti-Semitism, and also had a new idea that excited all Europe at the time, that actually Judaism is not a religion, but actually nationalism. So if you combine the two ideas that you're looking for a safe heaven, which is not in Europe, because Europe is not safe, and you're looking for a, a new idea of a new definition of Judaism, then Palestine comes naturally to, to their mind because of the uh, connection of the, to the Bible in the Jewish faith. That, that's one element, the element of, of looking for uh, a panacea, a response to, to anti-Semitism and for a Europe that doesn't want you to be part of it. So, and by the way, this is not unique to Zionism. Settler colonial movements that were seeking safe haven from European persecution founded the United States. Uh, as well as, as Canada and, and, and Australia and New Zealand. The second element is, and exactly coming back to this comparison with these other settler colonial movements, is that Zionism, like other movements of refugees from Europe, uh, opted for a country that already was inhibited by another people. And they chose an historical moment by which these people were already building a modern identity, a national identity, and had their aspiration like the rest of, of the world at the time, for independent self-determination. Uh, the moment Zionism insisted that the only place for a safe Jewish haven is Palestine, it became a colonialist, I would say settler colonialist movement, that clashed with the indigenous native people of Palestine. And like most settler colonial movements, as happened in the United States, it shows the elimination of the native as the best way of fulfilling its dream for a safe 
modern Jewish state. He was unable to fulfill this idea in full, and we are all the time within that parameter. A Jewish national movement trying to get as much of Palestine as possible with as few Palestinians in it, in an anti-colonialist Palestinian movement doing all it can, sometimes with better means, sometimes with quite uh, terrible means, to try and defend itself from that uh, project. Uh, you know, there was, a, a, if I may, just one more sentence, Sam. There was a great scholar of uh, settler colonialism, the late Patrick Wolf, and he said that settler colonialism is not an event. It's a structure. It doesn't happen in one day. As long as there is a, an, a DNA for the settler colonialist the, uh, that totally erases the native, the indigenous, from its future, then there's always a danger of annihilation for the natives, and over a danger, always a danger that the native or indigenous would fight back with everything at their disposal. Was was that element of the DNA, the elimination of the the indigenous, was that always uh, uh, exclusive uh, in within Zionism? I mean, when I look back at like uh, you know the the the, the charter in the uh, uh, around World War. I guess World War One uh, mm -hmm. of the Zionist Charter. There was a sense of like we're looking for a uh, a land where where rights are respected regardless of of race or religion. There are equal rights in that thing. I mean, is there is uh, do you need that that element within the DNA of 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 this movement? Uh, to eliminate the indigenous, or is it can you, it, to, to qualify as a as settler uh, colonialism, or can the idea of like we're going to uh, you know this is going to be a home, but it's going to be a, uh, a multicultural, um, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, you know, sort of environment that it's not necessarily going to be an exclusively a Jewish state. Uh, you know, first of all, let me explain. Elimination of the native is not necessarily genocide, as happened in North America. Elimination of the native, as in the case of Palestine, can be also translated to ethnic cleansing, that is, transfer of people, or enclaving them, or sieging them in Gaza. Um, ironically, Sam, what is really ironic is that the, from the very beginning, the leaders and the thinkers of the Zionist movement were envisioning a democratic state that was highly important for them. And for a democratic state, you need the demography to equate uh, the, uh, the democracy. In other words, you need a constant majority of Jews, at least a constant majority, if not exclusive Jewish presence there. This is so ironic in, in a way. If, I'll give you a concrete example for this. Had Israel not expelled by force three quarter of a million Palestinians during the Nakba, the catastrophe, during 1948. In the first Israeli election in 1949, the Jews would not have been the majority. Now, it's quite likely the Palestinians would not have voted for a Jewish state. By the way, they would have voted gladly for a democratic, uh, pluralistic state. But this was not an option as far as the Zionist movement is concerned. This is exactly the issue. 
The issue is that it's terrible in the 21st century to believe that there could be an ideology that is allowed to say, whoever is my citizens, I don't care, uh, but there is a, a superiority that I ensure to my own race, my own faith, my own religion. Uh, this is unacceptable. This is really unacceptable. And yet, I don't have to tell you this, Israel is commodified as the only democracy uh, in the Middle East. Yeah. But it is an ethnic racist state that believes that uh, your Jewishness is the ticket for being member of the Republic, if you want. Uh, and that that is just a, a modern face of the old settler colonial idea, let's get rid of the indigenous, and then we can build a, a beautiful demo Jewish democracy uh, in, on, on, in Palestine. Well, as you say, it's an ethnostate. And, and I, I, I'm wondering if you could return to the original intent of Israel um, by, you know, in the Balfour Declaration and when, at the nation's founding. Um, my understanding is that there were some very anti-Semitic undertones in the way that the British conceived of Israel. Um, is that accurate? And is that important in understanding the the, the context of how uh, Israel is is constituted today? Yes, uh, Emma, I think it's very important. It's even beyond the Balfour Declaration. Uh, people tend to forget that Zionism began as a project of evangelical Christianity, long before Jewish intellectuals suggested the idea of creating a Jewish state in Palestine. This was quite a vision supported by many uh, evangelical Christians on both sides of the Atlantic. And the motivation was anti-Semitic in a way, because in the vision of evangelical Christianity, uh, a, a millennialist view could only be implemented uh, if the Jews would return to Palestine. It had to be, or the, or the Holy Land, as they would have called it. Namely, you could not have the end of time, the resurrection of the death, uh, the return of the Messiah, without the return of the Jews to Palestine. Now, and... and we should add, and their conversion into Christianity. That was part of the deal. But it created a good pretext to encourage the idea that the Jews should not live either in the United States or in Europe. They should go to, to Palestine. So it was a kind, I, I used to call it the double bill for anti-Semites because they get rid of the Jews and, so to speak, they get the, back the only Jew they want, which is uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, this is this is very important. Now, this kind of group was very important among the British policymakers, and uh, Lord Balfour, who is behind the Balfour Declaration, was a very known anti-Semite. His greatest worry was that anti-Semitism in Russia would push hundreds of thousands of Jews into Britain. So he legislated in 1906 the Al Aliens uh, Act in the British Parliament that was specifically meant to disallow British refugees from Russia to come to Britain. Not surprisingly, when he began his connection with the, Balf with the Zionist movement, he saw even a better solution than trying by force to prevent Jews from Eastern Europe to come to Britain. It was better to reorientate them to Palestine. On top of it, he was told by British imperialist strategists that a Jewish Palestine would justify the integration or the incorporation of Britain, of Palestine within the British Empire. 
Because we have to remember, we're talking at a time when Palestine is still part of the Ottoman Empire, but the, those who fight against Turkey, Austria-Hungary, and Germany begin to envision how they will divide the spoils, who would have what. And a strong connection with the Zionist movement enabled Britain to say to France and other allies, Palestine should be part of the British sphere of influence because of its special connection with the Zionist movement. And we should say that that, that impetus is perhaps one of the biggest drivers of within American politics now. The, the Christian Zionist movement has a similar thing. Now, we should, I, I think it's also fair to say that, like, there was in, in, in Judaism since the, you know, the, the destruction of the Second Temple, a, at the very least, um, a metaphorical sort of desire to return to Jerusalem, right? I mean, we, we say this uh, in that, uh, the, the Jewish uh, holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Passover, you know, next year in Jerusalem, but it was always less uh, a, a political movement and more of a, I guess, a, um, a, a, a metaphorical idea. Now, Jim, show this gentleman how you can dance and sing. That's my attitude towards the Western powers. If you want to say there's no rules, fine. Don't go crying for your mummy when that comes. America today finds herself in a unique situation. She's the only country in history in a position to become involved in a bloodless revolution. If America does not respond creatively to the challenge to banish racism, some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. When the system doesn't work for the majority of the people, you gotta change the system. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your brother, Ramir D. Soka. Yeah. Welcome to this addendum episode segment. This addendum two um, episode 2023. Zero D. That was the episode on Russia and Israel. There has been this great mystery that I made a mention of at the end of that episode. And uh, that mystery surrounds the fact uh, that many people my age, 41, uh, view the Israeli one-sided war, the Israeli conflict, the Israeli occupation, as it has been called um, by the, quote, international community, by the UN. The Israeli occupation, this is not something created by the left. International law says that Palestine is under occupation. Uh, but we view the 
Israeli occupation in a very different light than our parents. I pointed out at the end of that episode that the primary reason for this um, was because we grew up in an era where uh, the information we were receiving about Israel and Palestine was not solely limited to the institutional resources and sources uh, that they had access to growing up and as adults. While we did for some time take as truth um, reports given by the New York Times um, and uh, other large institutional newspapers and ABC, NBC, CBS and other mainstream institutional um, news channels including MSNBC and Fox alternative news sources widely acclaimed news sources like Democracy Now! along with an ever-expanding view from outside American institutions from the BBC from Al Jazeera English from Telesaur English and from the revolution that has been independent journalists over the last 15 years having voices via various platforms on the internet we have been able to take that information lay it atop the information presented by the mainstream media institutions see the manipulation projected by those institutions see the disinformation and misinformation promoted or in many instances uh, especially when it comes to misinformation uh, held back which would present the events that they were covering in a more equal handed or equal view giving possibly greater sympathy to the Palestinians or even given greater context which would make what is often um, described as terroristic actions that have, that are senseless without merit a little bit more understandable from the standpoint of okay X happened but X happened in the words of the people who carried it out because A, B, C, D, E, F, G happened does it make X correct? as we used to as we were told as children two wrongs don't make a right but if both sides were wrong and there was a number of instances that led up to the final wrong that needs to be identified 
that needs to be talked about. And when people are asked to get together in a room, one side does not need to be given credibility while the other side doesn't when there were wrongs on both sides. Being in a position to appreciate this truth, mainly the position of now well over 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, of having access to on-the-ground information that the mainstream media institutions don't cover puts my generation, people around my age, at a significant odd or at significant odds with people older than us, 20 years, 30 years older than us, who tend to see the existence of Israel through the lens of the Holocaust. What happened with the Jewish people in Germany? The tragedy of the Holocaust. And thus, the gift to the Jewish people after the tragedy of the Holocaust was Israel. A home that they could call their own. Many people who, who would be uh, my parents' age or even older, they're late 60s, early 70s, maybe even mid-70s, they were a generation who interacted significantly with the generation that liberated the death camps in Germany. That came back with horror stories. Sometimes they told them, most times they didn't, from the battlefields in Germany. They interacted with a generation who held their heads up high knowing that they had defeated an evil that was trying to eradicate the Jewish population. A point that often is not made, but needs to be here. Anti-Semitism, true, hardcore, we don't like your kind, anti-Semitism was in existence throughout all of Western Europe and in the United States and many parts of Canada and basically where white people were, there was a significant population of white people who did not like Jews. They didn't like Jews to the point of often discriminating against them, treating them poorly, not always. Making sure that they were more isolated apart from the white communities, from those Eurocentric communities. And there was violence periodically between the ethnic groups within the white race. Particularly Jewish versus other Eurocentric, Euro groups. It happened. It was this anti-Semitism that led the Roosevelt administration to act slowly in helping 
Jewish people flee Germany pre-World War II, or really at the outset of World War II. It was that anti-Semitism that pushed forward a more fervent isolationist um, philosophy when it came to Germany and the rapidly increasing World War II, or the rapidly spreading World War II. I bring this up because, to an extent, the sorrow felt over downplaying the threat of Germany to the Jewish population, downplaying the pleas, P-L-E-A-S, by various Jewish groups and Jewish communities in Europe as the violence didn't turn genocidal yet but kept ramping up that fed the need to gift the Jews who survived that horror with something that something became a homeland. There were questions as World War II started drawing to an end, when it was clear that Germany was being defeated, Japan was being defeated, you know, the, 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 the West was going to win. There was questions as to where that homeland should be. But there was never a question of their right to have one. Now, recently I learned there was a proposal to take several million Jews and to move them into the United States. That was ultimately decided against. I believe, partially, due to anti-Semitism. An anti-Semitic feeling that decreased significantly as more and more Jews were ushered into Israel, displacing the Palestinians. Understanding the cost to the Jewish population of Europe of that anti-Semitism in the early days of what would become World War II created this sorrow within the United States population who fought that war. And that sorrow enabled them to justify any action the Jews moved to Israel undertook to establish Israel as a country. The model not the model, the statement that many Americans accepted as wholeheartedly true, Israel has a right to exist, comes from that sorrow. Comes from the idea that many American citizens, European citizens in America, did not believe that Jewish people had a right to exist. 
Note what I said there. They did not believe that Jewish people had a right to exist. This is prior to World War II. The anti-Semitism was ripe. And many of them did not really believe that Jewish people had a right to exist. This didn't mean that they wanted to genocide them. In fact, many of them, many, many Europeans, many um, white European Americans, viewed Jewish people in very low measure. They were the white equivalent of Negroes. The only difference was, it was understood that Jewish people were smarter than Negroes. That was attributed to the fact that they were white, though. The undercurrent of that thinking was, if we could do without them, we would, and we would get rid of them. Now, what did get rid of them mean? Well put them somewhere in the far corner of the earth, or nobody except for a few would say it. Back then, they didn't call that genocide. They called it mass murder. It was not until the Israelis, excuse me, the Jewish population was scaled significantly, or it was called, C-U-L-L-E-D, significantly, did we start talking about mass murder and mass slaughter in terms of genocide. See, the Jews were seen, again, as a offshoot of inbreeding. Or not inbreeding, I'm sorry, of um, interracial intercourse. Many people believed that the Jews were, in fact, black people who through intercoursing with non-black people had shed their blackness. They were just light-skinned Negroes. But that light skin gave them that intellect that other Negroes didn't have. This was actually this was actually understood during the pre-World War II days. And just as it was uh, acceptable to destroy Negro's communities, to destroy Negro institutions, to enslave Negro's, it was understood that periodically having to destroy Jewish communities, Jewish institutions, but not the Jewish people themselves were permissible. World War II changed that. The secret desires within European Americans and European people throughout the world took flight in Nazi rhetoric first and then in entire uh, or and then in the entire uh, civilization, the entire society within Germany, engaging in actions that match that rhetoric, i.e. mass murder of Jewish people. 
at the close of World War II, dealing with these internal machinations, these internal desires that were generations deep, that ran generations deep throughout the European psyche and society, was difficult. But it was there. The guilt. The disbelief. The inability to contend. To understand. To contend with the idea that people who look like humans who were ordinary people in many aspects, could ultimately do the things that the Germans did to another group of people who look like themselves. It was okay to do it to people who didn't look like themselves. But to go from rhetorically dehumanizing a group that look white to actually carrying it out in Western Europe. Not in a war setting, but just because you could frighten them. It frightened them. Because if it could happen to Jewish people, it could happen to other European people at the hands of other Europeans. That guilt led to the overwhelming support of Israel, even when people were still anti-Semitic. Even when people didn't want Jewish people, European, should I say, European Americans, and I need to be very, 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 very clear about that. Because this was a European-American problem. Even when European-Americans, those who had been here for generations and those who were just coming over, didn't want Jewish people building up significant institutions within their communities. They did not mind them building up significant institutions all the way on the other side of the world in this place where there were brown people living. Because... In their minds, they just, one, the Jewish people deserved that state. Two, the brown people didn't because, you know, they were less than human. And three, if they do it over there, they ain't going to do it here. Hence, the overwhelming support for Israel. Now, some of you may listen to that and say, How do you know that that's, that's true? Well, one, um, conversation my father and I had years ago kind of led me to understand that. Two, um, really just reading psychology of um, survivor's guilt, understanding survivor's guilt, and, and um, uh, you know, having read some things when I was in high school about the... Uh, 
the returning soldiers and what they experienced when they were in World War II. And then being able to appreciate presently the historical nature of anti-Semitism and how it has played out in, in Europe and then it was exported throughout the world and the truths of the craziness within it and the falsities of the craziness within it and it's really important to understand that that has led to a lot of this. It has led to a lot of this. To counteract anti-Semitism, Europe has developed a obsession with maintaining the right of Israel to exist, which means the Jewish people have a right to exist, which means they can do whatever they want because criticizing them becomes akin to wanting in the back of the mind to see Israel shrivel up and disappear. Criticizing them, criticizing um, Israel, criticizing the, the Jewish state within Israel, criticizing the Jewish population that is heavy-handedly going after Palestinian land, in the back of the minds of Europeans, calls us back, C-A-L-L, back to the anti-Semitic days pre-World War II when such criticisms would be used to hide a virulent anti-Semitism which really did seek to limit the institutional capacity of the Jewish community within the United States, within Europe, and elsewhere where Europeans dwelt. My generation, having not been exposed to that old anti-Semitism, but being familiar with anti-Semitic rhetoric because most of us know some hardcore white right wing people who themselves are indeed anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic, a word we should probably also note here, or I should note here, also applies to the Palestinians. They're actually Semitic, which we often don't hear, but they are Semitic. You should do some research on that word. It's quite, that, that history too is interesting, which by the way, that's another reason why, you know, we are... We approach this differently because we've, we've done some research into who the Semites are. But anyway, that's another whole thing. Um, we know white right-wing people who are anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic. Thus, when we are told, my generation, that we are being anti-Semitic because we do not support Israel's right to expand their settlements, which is what it's called via international law, to prolong uh, their occupation over lands that they were not allowed to seize over the last 50 years, though they did, which again, international law has said this, um, when we are called anti-Semitic because 
we refer to various stages in the occupation according to international law, we literally look at the term and say, that is insane for us to be considered anti-Semitic because we don't follow this way of thinking where Israel can do no wrong. And then comes the argument, which I actually heard brought up, which shook me to the core, because this was a right-wing person who has absolutely, in my presence, spoken language which I knew at the time was anti, um, anti-Semitic and very, very much detrimental to Jewish people. And him and I had had conversations about that um, and the origin of some of the language that he was using, globalist elites, things like that. And he says to me one day, this was back in 2018, and he goes, let me ask you a question. He goes, and I, I, I really mean this, because he was not stupid. You know, I've talked to people who were clearly not that informed or who were clearly high off of their idea of whiteness. But he was not dumb. He had intelligence and he was not, he did not, like his ego was not overinflated by him being white. He asked me, he goes, let me ask you a question. He said, you know, I noticed when we were talking a couple of weeks ago about um, some of the language that I use, and you you said that you felt and you you knew because you knew the origin of it that it was based in anti-Semitism. Well, let me ask you this: What does anti-Semitism really mean? And I played a little dumb. I said, "What do you mean?" I go, everybody knows what anti-Semitism is. And he says, but do we? He goes, me and you are on, on different ends of the spectrum of political thinking. The words that I say are classified as anti-Semitic, even though I am very pro-Israel, and I don't give a damn what they do to the Palestinians. If they want to go over there and level... Um, he didn't say Gaza, but he said Palestine. If they want to go over there and level Palestine and kill a million of them, just put their bodies into the middle of the ocean and sink them with a stone, I really don't care. And I kind of looked at him like, wait, what? And he said, and yes, I know that's, that's a war crime, but, you know, they're, 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 most of them are terrorists, the terrorist supporters. Get rid of them all. Just to hell with them. Kill them all. And he goes... I'm a huge, huge Israel supporter, though. And the words that I'm using is considered anti-Semitic. He goes, from what me and you've talked about, I can tell that you are not a huge Israel supporter. Even though you have never said that they shouldn't exist. You have never said that they should be taken off the land completely. You have never said that they shouldn't be allowed to, re, to maintain some aspect of the land that was given to them 
when they were born as a, as, as a country and a state over there. But because you, so, you show deference, because you show deference, excuse me, not deference, deference to the Palestinians because you believe they also have a right to exist, because you condemn some of the things that Israel does, you would be considered anti-Semitic. Simply because of the things that you state that the state of Israel does not want people stating. So what exactly does anti-Semitism mean? And I then ran through the idea of, you know, there's a long history of anti-Semitism. The idea of, you know, displacing Jews, raising their communities, raising their synagogues, um, which came with a dehumanization campaign and things like that. And after listening to me, he says to me with a kind of a smirk, and he goes, you proved my point. If that's what anti-Semitism is, if that's what it is, then how is what I'm saying anti-Semitic? How is what you're saying anti-Semitic? Because I don't want to displace them. I don't want to raise their community. I don't want to raise their synagogue. You don't want to raise their communities, raise their synagogues, anything like that. So how is it anti-Semitic? And I said, well, I think the reason they consider it anti-Semitism is because, you know, there's that, that process, that scale that is used often um, by Jewish groups, which say, you know, it starts with this. You know, you criticize us, um, and then it moves towards this process, and then that process, and then before you know it, we're getting pushed out to communities, our synagogues are being destroyed, and yada, yada, yada. And he kind of, again, smirked at me, and he goes, but who today is advocating that for Israel except for a fringe in the conservative movement, a fringe, or a lot of Muslims, he didn't say fringe, he said, or um, Muslims in the region, and a couple of uh, uh Heads of states, like um, he said, Ahmadinejad, but I think Ahmadinejad was not in power at that point. And he goes, so again, what is anti-Semitism? And I told him, give me some time, I got to think on that, because you kind of dropped a, dropped a huge bomb on me with that one. But I understood where he was coming from, and the, what I told him still held. The problem is... If you can't criticize Israel, and this is, he came back to this a few months later. He goes, you really don't have an answer for me, do you? And I said, I, I have the original answer that I gave you, and that's it. Um, there's a concern that if we start with criticisms, then we're going to go down this road, and I can understand it. But there has to be room for criticism. If Israel cannot accept criticism without saying that people are anti-Semitic, that they're on the same level of the Nazis that is going to lead to their um, extermination again, then there is a problem with that. And I can appreciate that, and I can understand that. This stayed in my mind. I thought about this for quite some time. In fact, um, this happened to be around the time when Mark Lamont Hill um, was chased 
from his position on CNN because he dared to speak up in favor of the right for Palestinians to exist. I thought on this for quite some time. I actually recorded two episodes discussing the Mark Lamont Hill um, firing back in 2018. Um, might have actually been 2019. I apologize, y'all. It's been a while. But um, I didn't publish any of them because I didn't feel like they were complete enough, like I had given myself enough time to really think on um, what that person had told me. I needed time to digest it. Um, six years later almost, and I've had just about enough time to digest it. And all I can say is that my generation understands anti-Semitism to not be a process, to be intentional. What is the intention of the words spoken by the person? Now, folks have said, especially Europeans, they always say, oh, well, you can't really tell the intentions of a person. But you can. You can. You can tell the intentions of a person by not only what they're saying at that moment, what they have said in the past, what they have done in the past, who they associate with, and how those associations developed, and how they continue to develop in the present. By taking all of this in, especially for people who have platforms which give them a public voice, by taking all of that in, you can make a determined calculation of intent and intention. So, on the right, you have a lot of people who are pro-Israel, but don't really like Jewish people. They're pro-Israel because most of them are Christians, um, Christian end-timers, who believe that supporting Israel, allowing Israel to build up its military, allowing Israel to um, do as it wilt in the Middle East, including um, indiscriminately bombing people, or killing massive, popula uh, massive uh, numbers of a population, that's going to lead to World War III, and that's going to lead to the rapture, that's going to lead to the ultimate battle between Satan and God, which will ultimately lead to Jesus coming back, and these people being saved. Then you have other right-wingers who are pro-Israel, don't like Jews, but want the Jewish state because, one, it causes conflict with other brown people, and two, it takes two groups of people who these right-wingers don't like and pits them at each other's throats. They don't like Jews, they don't like Palestinians, they don't like Middle Easterners, they don't like brown people, so let them all fight. Let them all fight, let them all kill each other, and then the white race will be there at the end. My generation understands this. We get it. Moreover, we have a longer view of uh, World War II, the world that was created from it, and uh, the troubles that have sprung from that creation.
we are not we are not a group who sees what is often called the war presently the Israeli Hamas war it's not a war we don't see the conflict over there and there is a conflict through the lens of what happened in World War II we see it through the conflict of and I said this in my last episode through imperialism let me explain to you the difference between a war and conflict a war is often carried out between two groups of people that are at least on paper equally matched Yes, there could be a route, but usually they're equally matched. Or at least um, the strategies that can be applied by the one that may be outarmed can make the route less um, hospitable and less probable. That happened in Vietnam with the United States. A conflict, a conflict is usually, in the, in the sense of armaments, is usually based on a pre-existing structure coming up against a invading structure or another structure that is being built up for some various reason. The conflict comes between those who rely on the old structure, not wanting the new one because it may be not favorable to them, but oftentimes um, the new structure is uh, or plans to deconstruct or destroy the old structure and those who are promoting the new structure because the new structure would benefit them. Um, and thus, the conflict begins usually with one side establishing the new institutions, the new structures, with the protest of the other side being ignored, usually at the barrel of a gun or some armaments, and then the other side deciding that they're going to fight back, but knowing that they're outgunned, they do it using either guerrilla tactics or um, protesting tactics. Usually, the conflict is very, very, very prolonged or goes on for a long period of time because while the one side does have um, all of the weapons and all of the guns and the armament uh, that should be able to defeat the other side, the other side usually has the numbers. Not only do they usually have the numbers, but they usually have the hearts and mind of the population that depends on the other institution or the other structure. So therefore, generationally, they can replenish their um, hostility towards the encroaching uh, structures and institutions. Wars 
tend to resolve themselves rather quickly and does damage on both sides, significant damage on both sides, to the point where institutions are deteriorated rapidly on both sides. The United States has not had a war like that outside of its own borders. The Civil War was the truest war the United States ever experienced. I don't count the Mexican-American War because that took place outside of America's borders. Please note, both of these definitions or descriptions are heavily influenced by the imperial reality that we are living in currently. They're living, uh, they are living definitions and descriptions that must be altered as time reveals, hopefully, a higher interpretation. As I stressed in the last episode, um, in 2003.0D.00, um, all life is sacred. All life is sacred. Every life is sacred. The Holocaust for my generation teaches, teaches the fundamental danger of hatred. That's what it teaches. It also teaches the potential for hate in crimes that are committed by those who hate. It's a cycle that must be broken. When a large group of people, out of hate, out of spite, damage another group significantly. Those who survived the traumatic occurrences that often leave large portions of their community dead, injured, maimed, and the like, carry with them a cancer that must be eradicated. That cancer is the potential to repeat the error that was within the original crimes against their people. This is not me making something up. This has been studied. This has been researched. This has been found to be true. Some of the most important studies of this phenomenon has been done by Jewish psychologists and doctors. There was a book, and I'm, I'm kind of mad at myself. I've been trying to think about it this whole episode because there was a book that I came across that talked about that, about the trauma cycle, about the cycle of pain that is created from genocides. You have to literally plan 
in your society to counteract it or else it will rear its ugly head and the same crimes that are visited upon you via genocidal hatred which that's actually just doubling up because hatred spawns genocide that will cause your society to visit those horrors upon another group all life is precious it is the last thing I will say is this One of the most sad um, narrative contortions I have witnessed over the last several weeks since um, this conflict has turned hot and Israel has begun to move into a position where mass casualties, civilian casualties, um, are nearly guaranteed has been particularly his assertion that the hospital bombing was a hoax. I don't know what happened over there. But I do know that from folks um, who have been following the Israeli settlement expansion project, the murders that have taken place to ensure those settlements have expanded, the conflicts that have been created as those settlements have expanded, even as international law has told Israel to stop doing it. These people who have been on this beat often, you know, for decades now, They look at the hospital bombing in an entirely different light. And my hope was that a person like with a large platform and a platform that is deserved and earned and growing would have restricted his comments to enable for time of clarity to really set in. Because internationally, and the reason I'm bringing this up, I'll, I'll make clear in a moment. Internationally, what he calls a hoax, the rest of the world have finally come to the conclusion that what was called a hoax by Israel and, and its Western backers wasn't necessarily a hoax. I bring it up for this reason. That single expression embodies the disconnection generationally of what is actually happening in Israel and Palestine. has mostly institutional sources to rely on 
for what is happening over there. And those sources are usually strictly American or heavily pro-Israel. We have citizens who are living in Gaza and have been for decades. Citizens who are living in Israel and have been for decades. We have journalists who work for various organizations inside the United States and outside the United States that are familiar with the terrain, the territory, and the history of Israel bombing civilian places and swearing up and down that they're bombing Hamas as they do. I was listening to an interview deconstructing this. And in that interview, a person pointed out how Israel maintains that Hamas is hiding um, military installations in civilian places. Yet, if you were to look at the placement of uh, uh, Israeli military assets within its own borders, they actually are doing the thing that they say Hamas is doing. When I heard this, and I thought about the idea that, you know, Israel is a small state. It's not like the United States, which is sprawling. And then I thought about what I had learned, um, I think, oh man, it's over 10 years ago now. I can't even believe that. Um, and about how Britain has stationed many of its military bases um, it only makes sense that Israel would have to put military bases near some civilian places because they don't have anywhere else to put them. Just as, I suppose, it would make sense that Hamas would do the same thing or the PLO would do the same thing because they have nowhere else to put them. I pray this thing don't get dirty. That it don't spread. But at the time of my recording this, I'm recording this two days before Halloween 2023. News keeps coming that Israel's bombing campaigns are reaching or have reached into other countries and other territories. And they have done so by saying we're fighting Hezbollah or the incursion of Hezbollah because Hezbollah has said if you march into the Gaza Strip, we are marching into you. It has all of the earmarks of a war that could spin out of control. My generation understands this. Which is why we call for a ceasefire. If we are truthfully to believe that Israel has a right to retaliate because 1,400, I believe it's 1,400 citizens um, 
and some internationals were murdered on their soil. Okay. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, blood for blood. At present count, international observers say Israel has killed at least five times what was killed on that day. When's enough enough? What? Do they get to kill 10,000 or, or, or 10 times as many? So 14,000? How about 100? 140,000? How about 1,000? 1.4 million? When's enough enough? My generation understands this. You want to talk eye for an eye? That means you got a limited blood flow level. And you've reached it. Question comes concerns, you know, you can always reach out to me. Find me on radio, the number 4AL.net, um, where independent media lives. You can also find me on Spotify, find me on uh, WordPress. If you want to contribute to the work that I'm doing, go to Patreon um, slash CWB podcast. Or you can hit me up on uh, PayPal Cash App, CWB podcast, $2, $4, $5, $10, $20, $30, $40, whatever you can do. It's much appreciated. Um, this entire thing makes me sanguine. Um, there's a depression that I feel when I think about this whole situation. It's going to probably get worse before it gets better, and that's what I, I really fear. Big up to Dr. Obertashaka. Um, big up to all of the journalists who are doing the real work of reporting what's over there. Big up to my generation. Black Power Media. To everybody trying to make this world better and trying to escape a catastrophe. Because I'm going to tell y'all, if we allow this thing to spin out of control, it's going to spin out of control. Big up to all the protesters asking for a ceasefire. Pro-Palestinian groups that are being discriminated against. Pro-Israeli groups that are being discriminated against. Um... Pro-Jewish groups who are asking that there be a ceasefire, which I need to say, the pro-Israeli groups that are being discriminated against are asking for ceasefires, are standing up for the right of Palestinians to exist. Big up to all y'all. May God move your, your speed. You might ask and love you control your movements. You know I'm Vimeer Diesel Gaia, and I've been waiting for something to happen for a week or a month or a year. Until the next one, y'all. Peace. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the gun to the wars that I fought in places.
They pick up a gun or a brick or a stone and they're alive. 